Amen. Good morning. Hey, we're going to jump into the Word in just a moment, um, but before that, I wanted to take a minute and address the happenings of this week. Uh, we've been thinking about them individually. You can't be alive and not know uh, what's happening in, the, in our country, and lots of us are talking about it, and I think our church ought to be an environment where we have civil discourse, where we talk about things that matter, not only uh, ancient texts applied to our life, but uh, what's happening in the world around us, uh, especially when what's happening is incredibly sensitive and has the potential to be quite polarizing. Uh, and so I'm not interested in telling you how you should think or, or how you should vote or anything like that, but talking about what it means to be Jesus's followers and thus his representatives. Uh, of course, I'm referring to the Supreme Court's historic decision this week to overturn Roe versus Wade, uh, a decision that has created as deep uh, a set of responses as any in my lifetime in the American populace uh, and has the potential, and we're already seeing this happen, to divide our nation even more profoundly than it already is. Uh, and I think that division and that tension probably exists in this room and in this congregation. Um, and so here's what I, what I want to offer by way of, um, of reflection. One, we are citizens, those of us who are citizens, those of us who are not are residents here, um, but we are residents of this country and we're not asked as followers of Jesus when we give our lives to Christ to forfeit our citizenship or to check our civic voice at the door. We shouldn't be silent, nor should we feel pressure in the name of God or goodness to be silenced, especially when the need for good and loving and clear voices is at a premium. We are still citizens, we are still residents, and we do still have a civic privilege and, I believe, responsibility as Christians, right? Uh, and as Christians, we shouldn't be pressured, in my judgment, and I believe in, in Jesus's, as we understand from Scripture, to walk lockstep with any particular social or political movement. If you believe or have been taught or pressured that to be a Christian is to be one political persuasion or one set a platform position, then uh, I, I think you would be wise to rethink that. That is to say, there are Christians, genuine followers of Jesus, bound for heaven, doing the work of God in both major American political parties and in all political orientations that have expressions of goodness here in America and long before our nation existed. And that's possible. That's not preferable individually to many of us because we, we wish for goodness to be normative and exclusive to one particular place on a, on a spectrum. The sad thing is that it is not. Uh, that's what heaven is for, right? The kingdom of God is the summation of goodness and virtue. No grouping of fallen humans can, facts, can, can represent that or approximate it. We can try, but where God is, goodness is. Where God's people are, there are rays of light. There are expressions of hope and redemptive work that's happening. And so, um, are there expressions of God's highest good for our nation that align with one political party and another? I believe yes. There are ideals held out by each of our major political um, influence groups in our country, that those, the ideals of which align with the ideals of Scripture and the kingdom of God. The execution and application and even pursuit of them are far from ideal and far from perfectly representative of the kingdom of God. But there is redemptive work all around. Eugene Peterson said it this way, Christ plays in 10,000 places. And if you've been taught that he only plays in your place, think about Jesus in a broader scope. Never has thinking about Jesus been more imperative. So first thing I want to share is that we ought not to, nor, nor should we ever be pressured or feel... Um, 
obligation to be silenced in the public square because we're followers of Jesus. To say, you know what, we're above politics and all that's going to hell. That's not true. God is interested in redeeming everything. Jesus said it this way in the book of Ephesians, Christ is everywhere in all things, filling every enterprise, every concern, every sphere of influence, filling all things everywhere with himself. There is no intrinsically secular. There is only sacred and sacred waiting to happen. How does it happen? Principally, it happens when Jesus fills it with people like you who represent him. He might come in an apparition and wave the God wand and just fill it supernaturally, but mostly how Jesus fills all things everywhere with himself is through his followers, his representatives, as scripture calls us, his ambassadors, right? And so in, this, in the public square, all the more at a time where the civil discourse is anything but civil and has hit historically unprecedented levels of shrill and dissonant and hopeless, all the more God's people are needed around the water coolers, in the public squares, and every place where ideas are yet discussed. Here's the thing. We don't check our citizenship and our civic voice at the door, but we must remember all the same that we are citizens of heaven first and citizens of the place where we live a distant second. Our unity trumps our disunity. Our common identity as followers of Christ is more constant, more enduring, more sure, and more meaningful than our individual disparate identities as Democrats, Republicans, or otherwise. That's why in an age where the current runs so swiftly toward homogenizing, go find people that think like you, believe like you, imagine the future of our country like you, and hang out exclusively with, exclusively with them, and maybe chuck rocks at people who you used to be friends with, but who it became clear think differently during 2020 on Facebook. You know, That's not Jesus' way. Jesus' way is to lean into difference hold one another's respected understandings with, with humility and curiosity, believe what we believe, but put Jesus in the middle of it. And Jesus, as a sort of, if you're a, if you're a science geek, as a sort of dialectic, Jesus absorbs the charge that lives in that in-between space. And those of you who aren't like School of Minds graduates, that may, merely means he's a safe buffer, right? And so... Um, what am I saying? I'm saying that we are the ambassadors of Christ. We are first followers of Jesus. We're his representatives in this place at this time on purpose. He put us here for such a time as this. And you know what? There is no shortage of shrill, vitriolic discourse, louder and yet louder voices saying what various sides believe. I'm not saying we shouldn't believe as we do, but adding our voices to the shrill, cacophonous, hateful um, fray, that's not doing anything positive. Representing Christ by doing what Scripture teaches and speaking the truth in love, that is what society desperately needs and is looking for, even if it doesn't know to call it that, at times like this. We're first Jesus's people, and then we're secondly everything else down the line. So let's represent Jesus in our country at this pivotal hour. Now, what are Jesus's interests? One, Jesus' interest is life. He said, I have come that they would have life and have it to the full. Jesus's interests are not mutually exclusive. His interests necessarily coalesce. So Jesus' interest is life. We know Scripture makes clear that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are knit together inside our mothers. We're not knit together inside our fathers. There is an incongruity in how that happens. There is compassion necessary in any incongruity. Anything that has the potential for being understood or going down unfair, that's where love and mercy have to buffer. But we know God's interest is in life. 
He doesn't create mistakes. He doesn't create accidents. Life does often come about in the most tragic and unlikely of circumstances. I was just reading in, in, in my weekly Bible reading this week how amazingly Jesus' lineage included like a prostitute and a, a, a Moabite woman at the time that God said, kill all the Moabites and don't above all else marry them. And yet God works redemptively through things, circumstances that are not ideal or even horrible. That's not to lack compassion. That is to recognize the sanctity of life because we are made in God's image. That isn't a Republican principle. That is not a Democrat, a Tory, a Whig. Pick your political position over the history of humanity. That is a Jesus and Word of God principle. Now, about this and other things, you might disagree. And here at Denver United, you're free to be where you are and think as you do. We're not going to groupthink you or shame you or anything like that. But I believe God's view of life is non-negotiable. So then society says, well, that is mutually exclusive with regard for and compassion for a woman on whom is thrust often unfairly this, this burden, often in cases of, of of poverty and great pain. And Jesus doesn't value life to the exclusion of life. He values life in every expression. And so we as his followers have the burden and the privilege of modeling the greatest compassion. We should be the most caring, the most empathetic, the most supportive and nurturing to the vulnerable, the, those whom circumstances and life and other people's bad decisions has unfairly thrust an incredible challenge on. God cares about each of these things. God cares about unity. Jesus prayed, as I've told you so many times, one thing for us as the future of his church, and it wasn't that we would be holy, doctrinally pure, or otherwise. I'm sure he cares about that stuff, but his primary concern was that we would be one, and that in our unity, we would show the world what the gospel is in practical expression and what God values. Unity is only meaningful in the context of disunity and strife. It's easy to be unified about something that everybody agrees on. Like the day after 9-11, unity was sold for pennies on the dollar. It was cheap and easy. But in times that are contentious, where people feel deeply and passionately, unity is, is a hard sell. And that's where so many followers of Jesus sadly check out and join their second affiliation and kind of make it their first. I think modeling unity and love, modeling empathy, respect, compassion, a listening ear, nuance, the capability of thinking through something that, that isn't as abjectly political as it is understood to be in our societal milieu that's Jesus's heart, I believe. Being able to put people for whom Christ died, whom he made, thought of in God's image, foremost, and our views, politics, and otherwise, second, that's the heart of God. And I hope that can be our, Denver United's, contribution to the discourse in our city uh, and to the, the, the tone and culture that emerges in a post-Roe uh, society. There's going to be a lot more strife where this came from. We're already seeing it. And I think the, the, I've been grieved, uh, as I suspect you have, at how shrill the tone has been, how deep the division, how hostile the, the, the reactions toward others, and how many in the Christian voice and community haven't, haven't meaningfully differed from that. Let's meaningfully differ from that. Let's respond in Christ's love. Hold to the politics that we do. Ask Jesus to inform our politics through the Holy Spirit shaping our conscience and nothing else. And then let's model unity, compassion, and love with truth. Speaking the truth in love. Love undergirded with truth. 
That's Jesus's way. And I think that's who God's made us to be. And I think hard as it is, it's a privilege to have been put here in America at this time as the remnant of Christ's followers. Easy to go any number of other directions and snap to a grid. Hard to walk this road. But I think this is what God's made us for. Amen? Now, I realize I have said an uncom- uncomfortably much for some and uncomfortably little for others of you. I have not said everything I think or believe. My politics are impertinent. You don't need to hear. You're not employing me as your pastor to be the leader of your political caucus. If you are, I resign. I, that's not my job. Go to, if you're a political person, go to that. If you're not, I think you would be well served to be well informed about the laws of our country. If we don't care, then the laws get made by those who do. Hope you like them. If we forfeit our voice, we forfeit our right to complain. At the same time, that's not what this is. We're not a political caucus. So if you're wishing for me to say more or less, to to align more with your politics, I'm probably going to disappoint because that's not my job. My job is to be a shepherd, to pastor, and to call us together to Jesus, to God's heart, to his truth, and what, as best we're able to discern by the Holy Spirit, are his purposes for us in this generation. Amen? All right. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray, God, that you would give us hearts that are humble and pure. I pray that you would give us minds to discern and hear your voice, your still small voice in the cacophony of our culture. Lord, I pray that you would reveal your truth and your love in us. God, make us vigilant defenders of your truth and equally vigilant representatives of your love. Oh God, we repent of Christian witness that has cared about love and discarded truth or set it aside or that has held out truth in tones and strains that are anything but loving. God, we look to Jesus who came full of grace and truth and we see that these are not mutually exclusive and we ask you to help us. Help us, God, to live the truth in love and show you to our city and to our nation. Lord, I remember Dr. King's words and they they resonate with me and so this is my prayer that the, the church be not the master of the state or the servant of the state, but the conscience of the state. Lord, let us fulfill that role in your love, in Jesus' name. And as we turn our attention to your word now, open our hearts and our minds to receive from it. We give it our focused attention. And this is our worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for allowing me to address what would be easier left unaddressed, except for the fact that we're all talking about it elsewhere. I'm just not willing to further a precedent that because things are touchy, we can't talk about them in church. The question then becomes, what can we talk about? The weather? Sports? The abs? I mean, awesome. The weather sucks. The abs are awesome. Okay, we talked about it. Now, can, can we live and be real and exercise those muscles that get left to atrophy of, of having hard, delicate, nuanced, compassionate, empathetic conversations? That's what I hope to model for us, all right? And forgive me for doing that imperfectly. I, too, am stuck inside of, of a human and trying to follow Jesus. All right, let's turn the corner. Time to look at the Word. We, um, without intended correlation to the matters at hand in our society, um, I've been thinking this week as I've looked at chapters 5 and 6 of Mark, I've enjoyed reading through, and I hope you are too, the book of Mark together and reading the Bible for, for what it's worth and just letting it be the, the teacher, letting the Holy Spirit illuminate God's truth through the scriptures. In chapters 5 and 6 of Mark, you see faith and fear come up as the, the contrasting dual theme. And as such, I've been thinking about the, the culture trend, really, that came about in the 1990s and has dominated most of our adult lives uh, of cultural relativism, right? We live in a postmodern society, as sociologists refer to it. And I think um, 
Every generation does this. But I think back to my early childhood in the 1980s as the good old days. The way I think my parents thought back to the 50s with, you know, like bobby socks and skirts and, and Buddy Holly and milkshakes at the soda shop. And there was, a, there was a simplicity. There was an innocence. There was a lot wrong in our country at that time. You know, when we talk about um, going back to when, when the world made sense, well, it made sense for, for my parents. It might not have made as much sense for, you know, the African-American folks living across my mom's rural Georgia town, and, and it probably wasn't awesome for them. Uh, but we all remember times that that the world made more sense. For me, the 1980s feel like that, right? Uh, because I, I think as I've, as I've given a little thought to it this week, the reason is it was the end of the modern age. Modern as differentiated from postmodern by sociologists. And the term means not so much modern in terms of, of technology or, or, um, or commercial progress, but modern in the sense that uh, there was still, it was the culmination of an age of right and wrong. There was an either-or uh, um, ethic, right? There, there were good guys and bad guys. There were Russians and Americans. And every bad guy in every movie had a Russian accent. And there was a president who, whether you liked him and voted for him or not, wanted to defeat the Russians. And Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall. And he did. And when the wall got torn down, so got torn down the modern social construct with it. This sense of, of um, objective rightness, right? That was when the good guys were all good and the bad guys were all bad. And it, we wanted it to be true. Like the superheroes weren't just super powered, they were super emotionally resilient. They never got tired or weary, right? They never felt sad. They were all good. And that's who we wanted um, to be like. And that's how we thought if we just tried hard enough, society could work. And the bad guys were all bad. Then began the postmodern era in the 90s. And Kurt Cobain and, and, you know, shouting loud and calling it good music. And then it actually becoming weirdly good music and our tastes sort of evolving. And, and then the movies started having the bad guys kind of be good. And the good guys kind of be bad. And you find yourself cheering for George Clooney and the bank robbers because the, the guys defending the casino's money were buffoons and the casinos were, were making money through gambling, but they made it legally, and it was their money. And these guys are just criminals, but we found ourselves cheering for the affable criminals and against the, the uh, fuddy-duddy good guys. And there was this moral ambu ambiguity, and thus began, right, cultural relativism, where what's true for you can be true for you, and what's true for me can be true for me, but don't you dare tell me what I ought to believe. And what got lost in the fray and ultimately flushed down society's toilet is any sense of absolute truth, right? That this is true whether or not you believe it to be, whether or not you wish it to be, and whether or not you even know about it. Like gravity, it happens whether you wish it to happen, whether you believe that it happens, or whether you have even heard of it, you still stick to the face of the planet, right? But postmodern culture began blurring the lines of either or, and what we got was a, 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 the replacement of an either or ethic with a both and ethic. And that's the, the world in which, of course, we live. And we hear that talked about, for better and for worse, all the time and it pervades every expression of culture. Our title this morning is Either Or. We're in Mark chapter 5, and we're going to pick the story up for the sake of time with the, uh, here at the end, the first story, because we studied this just recently in one of the other gospels' lenses, but it's the same story. It, of course, is when Jesus and his disciples went to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, the other side from the, the place that we now know as the nation of Israel. And there they met a man in the region of the Gerasenes. He uh, had a legion of demons. Remember, he was a big ball of inner damage, and Jesus gave him dignity. We talked about it in the interpersonal context and how Jesus uh, interacted with this guy who was the least of these. It was in that series and in that context. Remember in Matthew 25. Well, what happened, of course, was the the demons went into the herd of pigs. The herd of pigs rushed down the bank and were drowned. If you don't know the story, do read along with us. It's amazing reading the, the broader context and how it informs these stories, right? But uh, the people of that region got upset because their livelihood, among other things, was lost. They were freaked out that Jesus had healed the village 
crazy guy. And the, the herdsmen, verse 14, fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened, and a crowd soon gathered around Jesus. They saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were afraid. Mental bookmark. Then those who had seen what happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs, and the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. And can you imagine the tragedy of looking back with the clarity of historical hindsight and realizing you had chased away God in person from your town because you were afraid? Now, their fear makes sense. We know Jesus in the larger context of the story. They had no idea, nor did they have the heritage of the people of Israel on the other side of the lake of expecting a Messiah. They just had this dude show up and turn their village upside down, but their response was noteworthy in their fear. We're in a series called Through the Bible, which we do a couple of times a year, looking at a book of the Bible, reading through it, and studying it for what it has to say rather than bringing our idea onto it and informing it with Scripture. We're letting Scripture speak and then just simply trying to understand how to digest that for our lives today. We ask three questions when we read through the Bible. One, what does the text say? Two, what does it mean? And then three, what does it mean to me today? A responsible student of Scripture asks first, what does it mean to the people to whom it was originally written at the time it was originally written? What was its original intent? And then believing it to be alive and active, the Word of God relevant today as it was then, what does it mean for me today? It's not going to mean for me something opposite of what it meant for them at that time. So um, this is, of course, predicated on one of our church's values. We embrace the centrality of Scripture. And so this is us embracing the centrality of Scripture and my team and I trying to model for you how practically to do that and weave this value into our lives. If you didn't, I'd encourage you to pick up one of the reading plans there at the back of the room on your way out at the tables. Catch up. It's quick and easy to read five chapters in a week and then join in with us reading through Mark over the course of the next several weeks. The story continues in verse 21. Jesus got in the boat when they asked him to leave, and he, he honored their wishes. He went back to the other side of the lake, and a large crowd gathered there on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. When Jesus, rather, when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him, My little daughter is dying, he said. So this is a man of, of religious and social stature, the, the sort that had principally been opposing Jesus and coming at him haughty and condescending. This guy comes humble and goes low and responds to Jesus, perhaps because he needed something and he had seen the power of God through him. He saw Jesus and fell at his feet, pled fervently, my little daughter's dying. Can you come and lay hands on her? Heal her so she can live. And Jesus went with them. All the people followed, crowding around him. So this is the other side of the lake where the people did know who Jesus was. They had been awaiting a Messiah. They did gather in synagogues, read the scriptures, and opinions about him were becoming quite polarized at that time. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors and over the years had spent everything she had to pay them, but had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. She thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. And immediately the bleeding stopped and she could feel in her body she had been healed of her terrible condition. Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him. So he turned around to the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? Now, quick aside, did Jesus know who touched his robe? I think we have good cause to believe yes, because he was in very nature God. I and the Father are one, he said, as recorded in the Gospel of John. As such, he didn't forfeit his omniscience, his God-likeness. He rather set aside its privilege. And so it's safe to conclude that Jesus probably knew who touched him. So why call her out? Why expose this woman? It seems that he wanted to make a point. His disciples said, Lord, 
Look, the crowd is pressing on you. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept on looking, intent to find who it was, to see who had done it. And then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him, told him what she had done. And he said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Perhaps we know Jesus to be good. It wasn't, I think, reliably we can conclude his intent to embarrass or shame her. She would have been happy to stay in anonymity and receive her healing, but Jesus wanted to illuminate that what he said at the last was what had carried the day. He didn't say, God's power has healed you. I, the Son of Man, have healed you. You're pressing through the crowd and doing this particular act grabbing onto this part of my robe healed you. What he said was, your faith has healed you, your faith. And so what we see on two sides of the lake in this one two-part story is a sort of tale of two cities, right? One city that culminated its experience with God in the flesh with the response of fear, and another city that culminated its experience of God in the flesh with faith. And it went two different directions. Fear drove one community, and faith drove the other. And so this is sort of the the context. We're asking, what does the Bible say? What does it mean, and what does it mean to me? This is us getting our minds around, what's this text saying? It's saying many things, but looking at it from the zoomed out one level view, not so much for the character interaction, which is a a meaningful and I think uh, important read. That's what we talked about back in February when we were looking at it through the lens of Jesus' interaction with the man. But looking at it as a story of his interaction with a town, we see faith driving the response of one community, fear driving the response of another. A couple of other points of context along the way. The first is the literary structure of contrast. This is something that Mark appeals to again and again. He relies on this. His is the most condensed gospel. It provides the least detail and the least situational context, he contrasts continuously one response with another. We saw that in chapters one and two in the responses of people to Jesus individually. That contrast plays out with different communities in this story, with different social classes, different religious pedigrees, and different needs throughout the book of Mark. And the second is a literary device that Mark uses repeatedly. I don't know whether he knew he used it, but God inspiring the writing of the gospel of Mark as he did routinely evidences what scholars call, and this is a super geeky term, the Markin sandwich. Markin is just the adjectival use of the the gospel's title, Mark. You could be like of Mark, right? The Markin sandwich. A sandwich meaning that he takes one idea or one storyline, squeezes in the middle another one, and then returns to the first. He does it continuously. As you become aware of the Markin sandwich as a literary device, you'll see it all over as you read through Mark. It's one of the great values of reading through a book, all 16 chapters, is that you start to see these themes. And when you see them, literary devices being one of those themes, the question that you ask is why? And that takes us from what does the text say to what does the text mean? Why would God use a Mark and sandwich? First, what is it? Okay, here's here's what it is in a nutshell. You've got, are you following me? Am I super geeking out on you right now? I am enjoying this, just so you know. The Mark and sandwich thing thrills me. All right, so what, he lands on the the shore of the Sea of Galilee where the people of Israel are, and they're they're excited about him. They greet him enthusiastically, and he meets um, Jairus, the synagogue ruler, whose daughter is dying. So he comes to him humble on his knees and he says, all right, I'll go with you. Then right in the middle of that, he tells the story of the woman who comes to him and grabs the hem of his garment and then Jesus heals her. And then right after that, he returns to Jairus and the story of his daughter and goes on with that from there. So he sandwiched the woman with the issue of the blood story, in between two slices of Jairus and his daughter bread, the Mark and sandwich. Make sense? So the question is, why? 
The, the, the Mark and sandwich isn't a matter of interpretation or opinion. It just is. They're all over the place in Mark. The question is, why? Why? The question is, have you gone through puberty? The answer is, I hope so. Uh, the question is, why? The question is, why? There is, in, in logic and rhetoric, uh, a principle called mutual exclusivity. One textbook reads this way, a logic textbook. In logic and probability, actually this is from like an a, a advanced math game theory textbook. I understood virtually none of it, but I did understand this sentence. So in logic and probability theory, two events or propositions are considered mutually exclusive if they cannot both occur at the same time like heads and tails, are mutually exclusive. It's either going to be one or it's the other. That's the basis, the logic or philosophical basis of modernism, of an either-or culture ethic. You know, undoing mutual exclusivity is the principle behind postmodernism and a both-and culture ethic. Mutual exclusivity as a logic principle is the basis of modern and Western philosophy, the either-or, versus postmodern, which is new in our country, but far from new in human thought. It's what's the, the principle founding Eastern philosophy, which is both and. So you could say in a very reductionist overview of, of, philo of world philosophy, Western philosophy is rooted in either-or, Eastern philosophy is rooted in both and. The difference is our regard for mutual exclusivity. All right, done geeking out. What does this mean for, for us and for the text? I think what Jesus is wanting us to see in calling out that woman, what the Holy Spirit is trying to highlight in creating this mark and sandwich of faith responses and then contrasting them to the people on the other side of the lake and their fear, is that faith and fear are mutually exclusive. This is how they work. It's either one or the other. Now, it's important to note, we're not talking here about the feeling of fear, the experience of fear. That's involuntary. That's a feeling. We don't shut that down. But rather, what we're describing here is the response of fear, the choice of engaging it or not engaging it. Faith is not the absence of fear, but it is the choice to trust God in the face of fear. So faith and giving way to or engaging fear are mutually exclusive. You could put them on a scale like your 1986 Honda Civic climate control system, pre-automatic temperature control. You know, there was the red slider. Remember the, the, the wedge that went this way and the blue wedge that went that way? And you slid it along or you perhaps turned the dial. And more red is less blue. More blue is less red. Hot and cold are mutually exclusive. Now, warm or cool are shades in the middle. But here's the idea. Faith as a response to circumstances and fear as a response to those same circumstances are mutually exclusive. More faith is less fear. More fear is less faith. They work in exactly contradictory force to one another. The story continues in Mark verse 35, while he was speaking to his messengers, uh, while, while he was uh, rather speaking to that woman, Jairus' messengers arrived and told him, your daughter's dead, so there's no use trouble in teacher now. Jesus famously overheard them and responded to Jairus, do not be afraid, just have faith. Do not be afraid, just have faith. Now, he's not saying you shouldn't fear that, that, that news. What you're feeling doesn't matter or doesn't count. You're supposed to pretend you don't feel that. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, do not choose the response of being afraid. Rather, choose the response of faith and belief because faith and fear are mutually exclusive. And that's really the big idea of this passage today. Faith facilitates 
the move of God in our lives. Faith opens the door to the Holy Spirit's activity. And you could say, well, if God wants to move in my life, he'll just do it. He's God. Is he capable of doing that? Of course. Is that his way? It would seem not typically. God works in cooperation with us. He gave us the capacity to choose and invited us. Whosoever would believe would not perish, but have everlasting life. So he invites us to a partnership of becoming, of healing, of growing, of redeeming, of being restored. And in that partnership, faith is the medium in which the work of God plays out. Faith is the environment that welcomes the move of God in our lives. It's not our strength or cunning or perfection. And by contrast, fear stifles it. Fear stifles the move of God in our lives. This is why our enemy traffics not principally in harm or loss, but in fear. Now, that's not to say he does not work harm and isn't capable of doing so. But when he harms us, the thing is merely the thing. It may be a really bad thing, but it is instantly bounded once it happens. We know what we're dealing with. And then that human impulse to either fight or flight, that impulse to dig deep, rise above, overcome, kicks in. And he's automatically losing ground, our enemy, as soon as the work is evidenced. But fear, see, fear is like, you've heard of the gift that keeps on giving? Fear is like the withdrawal that keeps on taking because it's unbounded. The possibilities of badness are endless. That's why, have you noticed, the enemy traffics in fear in your life much more than in harm. For every one instance of harm, there have been a thousand instances of fearing what may go wrong. Fear begets anxiety. Fear begets worry. Fear begets selfishness and so many anti-fruits of the Spirit, right? If you've got the fruits of the Spirit that grow the good things of God in our lives, these are like the, the uh, artificial flavor and color, um, simple carbon, sugar, boxed, preservative-filled treats that do the opposite of fruit in our lives. These are the things that they're easy to take in, but they actually decay us from the inside. Fear is the enemy's primary strategy in your life. And I think the reason for it, Jesus makes clear in this passage, is because fear stifles the work of God. Their fear response went down the road and not, it, it, it quenched intellectual curiosity. Wow, what actually happened with this guy? He got demons driven out of him. That's crazy. Who is this man, Jesus? Could we at least hear more before making a decision? Fear makes us the most base animalistic version of ourselves, self-preservation, right? So it stifles intellectual um, uh, curiosity. It stifles relational exploration. It shuts us down. And their response was, before even understanding what they were dealing with, rejecting God out of hand. And so the enemy traffics in fear. Chapter 6 goes on here in Mark to give us three case studies in fear. And you're going to need to read those for yourselves this week because we had a little bit of of life and current events to discuss. And so I just want you to see, and we're going to name these and get out of here. Mark 6, 1 to 5. Jesus goes to his hometown and they scoffed. He's just the carpenter. They were deeply offended at him and refused to believe. They diminished him. He was one of them. The possibility that he would be somebody significant was a referendum on their own insignificance. There was a sort of zero sum to their thinking about how this work of God could go down. And so they refused to believe. And so it says Jesus didn't do, he couldn't do miracles. Now, did he suddenly stop being God and lack the power in his hometown to do miracles? No. But he said to the woman, remember in the Mark and Sandwich, your faith has healed you. There's a very real part that our faith plays in facilitating, welcoming, making possible, if you will, the move of God. And so where they responded not in faith but in fear, he was not able. Their faith or lack thereof made it impossible for 
the work of God and the move of God to happen. So what were they fearing in his hometown? What was the fear beneath that response of diminishment and rejection? What was his hometown afraid of? Perhaps inadequacy. For him to be a big deal coming from our little town means we're less. It's a referendum on our perception of our own worth. Have you ever diminished something, if you're honest, with no reference to its value, but because of what it means for you, how it makes you feel? It's a very human thing to do. It makes me feel insecure that Jesus, my neighbor, is now a big deal, so I just kind of diminish him. It's a fear of inadequacy, that I'm not enough, that I don't have what it takes. And this fear kills faith and stifles the move of God in our lives. It goes on. The second chunk of Mark is this Mark in sandwich number two in today's readings, uh, where Jesus is interacting in real time, and then it gives us a sort of aside about Herod and John the Baptist and how John the Baptist's end came about with Herod and uh, his new wife and her daughter and his desire to people please, basically. If you don't know what I'm talking about, do read along with us. If you have been reading along with us, you're like, yeah, that was a trippy story. And come to think of it, it was totally Mark and sandwiched right in the middle of two present and continuous real-time events. Kind of the Holy Spirit's way through Mark to highlight that. Herod actually liked immoral man as he was, enemy to the people of God as he proved to be. He liked listening to John the Baptist. He was actually, there were tiny tendrils of grace drawing Herod in. But he regretted having to have him executed because he feared his oath and his dinner guests. And so the move of God in him and through him potentially in the whole region of Galilee that he ruled over and in his family to come was snuffed out like a candle. What was Herod afraid of? It would seem rejection. Rejection from people. Their disapproval. And then the Mark chapter 6 ends with the disciples in real time again. Bottom slice of bread in the Mark and sandwich here in Mark 6. Rowing their boat at night across the lake one more time and it gets stormy and they see Jesus come walking to them and they freak out. Now they're not afraid because of the waves. If there's anything empirical to fear, it's drowning in a storm. But they're fishermen. They're, they're familiar with navigating stormy seas. But they see something they don't understand and their response is fear. They cried out in terror. And Jesus' response, of course, don't be afraid. I am here. What were the disciples afraid of here? Perhaps it was mystery. We don't understand this. This doesn't fit into our box. We don't have a file for someone walking on a lake like we do stormy seas. We don't have the resources in ourselves to navigate this challenge and so fear. We fear, don't we, what we don't understand? That's perhaps more than any other elemental reason why there is such a deep and seemingly insurmountable divide down the middle of American society. We fear what we don't understand. And so we resort to standing on our side safely away from the chasm and going through the paces of flimsy deconstructionism instead. So here's the question that this text asks. What are you afraid of? There's much to fear. What are you afraid of that is stifling the move of God in your life? Perhaps it's inadequacy. Fear that I'm not enough. That I get down the road and where push comes to shove, what I have is what I'm going to have to rely on. And I'm not sure I have what it takes. Perhaps, like Herod, it's rejection. I take a stand for something and people are going to think I'm foolish or silly or old-fashioned or small-minded. Perhaps 
people won't like me. Perhaps I won't be invited to as many social events. Maybe it's mystery. Maybe what we fear is that we don't understand it all. We can't fit the the God of the universe who holds our world in his hand and created us in his spare time. Who thought of the vastness of the cosmos and your DNA to the subcellular level that we can't get our minds around him. Perhaps that we don't understand all of the revelation of God in Scripture or His truth or how these things fit together and how they play out and what we're supposed to do with it all. Perhaps we fear the mystery and we would rather the safety of something that fits in our simple, comprehensible box. Maybe we fear giving up control. Maybe we fear appearing incompetent. Maybe, like so many of us, you fear getting hurt. Makes sense. Faith and fear. To feel those feelings is human. Jesus felt them. But we either respond in fear and stifle faith and the move of God, or we respond in faith in the face of the feeling of fear and invite God to be more, even where we come to realize we're less. But faith isn't knowing how it all plays out. Faith is trusting God even when we don't know. Do not fear, Jesus said. Only believe. Would you stand? Father, I pray for my friends. There's so much here. There's so much more I want to explain and talk about. But God, the truth is I don't get it either. We're all looking through a keyhole. We're all looking through a mirror dimly. How we need you, Jesus. You are our shepherd. You are our guide. You are our guru. You're the one we look to. You're the one who did all things well. You're the author of life. You're the healer of our hearts. You're the redeemer of our destinies. And thank you, Jesus, that you cared so much about us and our way that you gave us the Holy Spirit after setting us free and bringing us back to God and assuring us of our eternal life, that you gave us the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. Father, would you fill us afresh with the Holy Spirit? If you want more of God, would you just open your hands and ask him? Just ask him, would you fill me? Would you refresh me? Would you give us the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us? To strengthen us in faith? Holy Spirit, would you work in us this simple truth? If we heard nothing else, if Mark and sandwiches seem like a a waste of breath and, and all these stories are hard to remember, would you stick in our hearts this word? Do not fear, only Holy Spirit, would you help us? We want to be open to your move, to your work in our lives, to your redemption, to your healing, to the possibilities of your glorious future. We want everything you have for us, God. And so we choose faith. I remember the words of that dad, so honest, so humble, when you asked do you believe I can do this? And he said, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Lord, that is my cry. I pray this for my friends. I pray this for my family, for our staff. I pray this for me. We believe. Help us overcome our unbelief that we would follow you in everything you have for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.